Thank you again to the uh, musicians for leading us as always. I want to say thank you to uh, pastors uh, Shannon and Hargrove for the opportunity to uh, allow me to share the Word of God with you this morning. And uh, it's always a privilege, and I never take it lightly. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 16, if you will. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be looking at uh, a short passage of Scripture, but I think and I hope by the end of the uh, message you'll understand how uh, really amazing and vital it is. Matthew chapter 13. I'll be giving you some of the context, 16, verse 13. Uh, I'll be giving you some of the context uh, of where we are uh, as we uh, get into the message. Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I'm going to begin with something of a test. As I look out over the congregation this morning, I think most of you are not going to identify with this particular illustration, but... uh, Here's a test, the test of your age, if you will. How many of you remember the rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar? Uh, There's a a few, more than I thought, actually. That's kind of a surprise to me. Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, Jesus Christ Superstar uh, was an album. Now, stop here. An album is a vinyl disc about this big around. (laughs) Uh, you, you put it on a turntable or a platform, it spins around, a needle scratches on it, and uh, out comes music. You probably can go to a museum and see one of those things right next to a typewriter, another uh, something from the blast in the past. Anyway, this album was released in 1970 and became a Broadway production in 1971. I was in high school uh, during that time. Uh, And I was uh, not yet a Christian. I was pursuing a girl way above my status. She was a Christian and extremely cute and and still is. And I was trying to impress her. So I bought this album and we listened to it in her parents' basement. I had not listened to this album at all before we were listening to it together together. Uh, but I knew that she was into Jesus, and I thought, well, this is, this is going to put me in good stead, okay? Uh, as I remember, I don't know whether she was impressed or not. I do know that her mother was decidedly not impressed <laughs> with my selection of music at that time. All these years later, the premise of a hippie Jesus seems rather out of date, somewhat perverse, <laughs> much like bell-bottom pants and tie-dye t-shirts, which I also had, and I have pictures, which none of you will ever see. And I don't recall, again, exactly uh, 
what, what the, how the thing really went, but I do remember that the most memorable signature song in this rock opera, sung by Judas of all people, uh, didn't know at the time that was a problem, but nevertheless, it's probably one of the most memorable lyrics is, Jesus Christ, Je- I won't sing it, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who are you, what have you sacrificed? Jesus Christ, superstar, do you think that you are who they say you are? That question, who are you, or better, who is Jesus, is a question that has been asked countless times over the last two millennia. And it's still being asked today. Who is Jesus? We'll talk a little bit more about that. How many answers, how many opinions, how many conjectures have been given to that question? Who is Jesus? Well, actually, there's only one definitive answer to that question. It was given by those who actually knew Jesus, and we are at that text right here this morning. We're going we're gonna to look at it. Let me give you a little background and context again. In Matthew's gospel, the main theme of Matthew's gospel, his main objective, is to demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah that he is the Messiah. He is declared king at his birth, although his literal kingdom has not yet appeared. He's proven to be a prophet by his ministry, a ministry that will only be fully realized in that millennial kingdom, but a ministry of which there were foretastes, and that's what the previous messages that uh, George was talking about. What he did, his actions, proved that he was the Messiah. He, he healed, he cast out demons, uh, he did other things. The, the message that I was going to preach this morning and decided not to was the message in which, uh, the incident in which John the Baptist sends to Jesus and says, are you the expected one? And Jesus says, basically, look at the things I've done. Look at what I've taught. My actions, my teaching, the healings, the uh, the uh, times of casting out demons. What was that word again? Anyway, exorcisms. They all prove that he is the Messiah. He's a prophet. He's a king. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He was a priest on the cross, and he's a priest right now interceding for us. All of these were messianic functions, things that they knew the Messiah was going to do, and he came and did them. In the words of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, he came to bring the good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He did all of that. That's what he did. And yet the Jewish leadership rejected him. The crowds, the people, like all people, happy to be fed, happy to be healed, happy to have all the ministry done for them, Uh, they completely misunderstood them. We talked about the crowds in a previous message. He came and taught them the Sermon on the Mount, which uh, in Anchored we've recently gone through, the parables in chapter 13. He sent out the disciples. He put up with their misunderstandings. Now, in Matthew's gospel, in the life of Jesus, a turning point has come. From this point on, He spends more of his time preparing his disciples for his imminent departure. The the focus becomes the disciples. Remember that for next week's message. 
He began to turn his attention to the disciples in chapter 13, where he taught the parables. But even more now, from this point on to the time of the triumphal entry, his teaching is pointedly directed at the disciples to prepare them to be disciples. The instructions are getting more specific. He talks about uh, taxes and forgiveness and divorce and serving. And there's this repeated notice in chapter 16, verse 21, 17, verse 9, 17, verses 22 to 23, 20, chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. Again, over and over again, he said he, stopped, he would stop them and say, I just want you to understand. Some man is going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and rise again. He did that several times. We haven't got time to go there, but it seems like the, the disciples never really got that. By the time that all of that happened, he had warned them again and again. By the time that that happened, it's like they weren't ready for it. And yet he's speaking to them, trying to get them ready. If they're going to manage at this time through the crucifixion, uh, through the resurrection, even indeed, and beyond that, one thing is absolutely crucial and essential. There must be absolutely no doubt to the answer to the question, who is Jesus? My friends, I think a lot of times living the Christian life is hard. Serving the Lord Jesus Christ is hard. The world we're living in now, it's only going to become more and more difficult. And we, we could have a lot of messages on what is it going to take? What's it, what does it really take? What's the bottom line in terms of living the Christian life as difficult as it is? What is it that we need to know? What, how are we going to manage in this world? And I want to suggest to you that this is it. You have to be absolutely certain of the answer to this question in order to deal with it. This is where a lot of people fail. And this is where many people, churches, ministries stumble. We need a definitive answer, and and this is going to be it. This message is getting really exciting, isn't it? Say yes. yes. Yes, thank you. All right. So let's go to the text. Actually, the outline for today, you're you're ready for this? The outline for today is two points. There are two points. Actually, there there are two questions. There's just two questions. And it's the outflow from each one of these questions. So, uh, you know, I just, I don't always do like multiples, okay? There's only two. It'd be easy to remember for those of you who are taking notes. Just write down first, second, and, uh, and you're almost halfway there. Two questions. What is the first question? Well, before we get to that, before we get to the first question, we have to deal with the background a little bit. Look at the text again. He says he came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. So when you say Caesarea Philippi, you all nod knowingly like this, you know. Sort of like when I was a pastor, I, I took a pastorate in Indiana one time, and I, I, I was just there for like two weeks, and I was asking for directions, I think, to get to the DMV or something like that. Say, well, you, you, just, you just go down this street here. What's the name? We don't know. It's just this street, okay? Until you get to where the old Millnot plant used to be and then make a left-hand turn. And it's like, <laughs> how am I going to know? You ever have people give you directions like that, you know, about landmarks that don't longer exist or give you place names you haven't got the foggiest idea of? So Caesarea Philippi, okay? 
Okay. Which is even more confusing. There's more than one Caesarea because it's named after Caesar. And he was kind of an egotist, so he had a lot of places named after him. So let me tell you a little bit about Caesarea Philippi. The location of this particular place is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee and was, surprisingly, a center of pagan worship. Uh, It's known today as Banias. I was sort of expecting Pastor Carl to send us some pictures from Banias uh, that I could use as an illustration. But uh, a corruption of the name Panias from the Greek god Pan, that's that Greek god that had the body of a little boy and the rest of it a goat, which is all pretty creepy, I think, but nevertheless. Um, And there are a lot of pagan temples around. A natural spring right there made it into a garden area right at the foot of uh, the hills in Mount Vernon. Mount Vernon, Mount Hermon. Uh, Herod the Great built a pagan temple there and dedicated it to, of course, Emperor Caesar Augustus. Herod's son, Philip, uh, did some remodeling of the place about uh, 14 AD and in honor of Caesar, but since he expanded it, he put his own name on the place too. So uh, that's why it's Caesarea Philippi. Many narcissists. Interesting thing, interestingly enough, it's outside of the land of Israel, technically. It took him outside. I mean, today it is, but back then, this would have been outside the, the designated area of Israel, which in a sense made it a strategic place that Jesus could take his disciples away from the pressures, away from the opposition, away from the crowds. We're going to talk about it in a little bit again. Uh, it would be like taking a retreat. If you're ever part of a business team or something like that, for us faculty, they take us out on every year before the semester starts. They take us out to some place. Uh, very expensive, very exclusive. Spend all the money that the students are uh, spending uh, on tuition. You think it's all about tuition. It's actually about vacation for us. <laughs> but nevertheless, that's what they were doing. Get away, get away, get away from the crowds, get away from the, uh, the hubbub, and sort of free them up to be able to say what they really think. Uh, one author, Warren Worsby, says, somewhat ironic that uh, this great confession happens within sight of Caesar's temple. Maybe that was Jesus' point, right? In front of all the pagan temples, a declaration from the disciples. So here comes the first point, first question. At the end of verse 13, he was asking his disciples. The indication there is that he probably asked them this several different ways, but asking the disciples, so his first question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now first, note the, this title, the Son of Man. Tan weon tu anthropu, and if you're a seminary student, never do that, okay? <laughs> never, never quote the Greek uh, to, the, to the audience. But I can do that. I'm, I'm a professor, so... Uh. <laughs> This is a very interesting self-designation of Jesus. In fact, this was his favorite self-designation. He referred to himself as the Son of Man more than anything else. And here's an interesting point, is that as a designation for Jesus, uh, it appears more times than anything else other than the name Jesus himself. I mean, this this was used over 80 times in the Gospels, vast majority of those times of Jesus himself, it never became a way for other people to refer to him. That is, no one, no one else is ever recorded as referring to him. I mean, the title is used, but not directly of him, the Son of Man. And interestingly as well, it never became a title that was used by the early church 
or in any of the creeds. Uh, it was just his designation of himself, uh, the Son of Man. It had a sort of double meaning, of course. In one way, this title was clearly messianic. It comes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, a very well-known passage that not only Christians thought of as messianic, but, but Jews thought it was messianic. Groups like those that... Uh, wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, thought of this as a messianic text, so messianic title, so the Son of Man. For his part, he probably used it to emphasize his humanity, his humility and submission. And some even think that that's all he meant, that he used this title, but he didn't have any messianic sort of uh, uh, ideas about it at all. He was simply affirming his humanity, not claiming to be the Messiah. But I find that sort of hard to believe, that he would use a title that is so clearly messianic that everybody would start, start thinking in those directions, but not think that he, he meant that at all. It would be confusing. The best explanation, in my opinion, is that he was well aware of the messianic implications of this, that, that he, he knew that he would start bringing it up. Uh, but at the same time, it wasn't a blatant or direct claim saying out loud, I am the Messiah. And that's because, as I said, again, the, the, Jesus made it clear that he was the Messiah by his actions. He didn't go out making claims. He went out and did things that would basically bring everybody else to conclude, well, this must be the Messiah. He's doing messianic sorts of things. And, uh, but still, he used the title Son of Man, I think, because he was self-aware. People have asked me over the years, do you think Jesus knew who he was? <clears throat> do you know who you are? Okay. <laughs> Okay, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think. Should I give them some deep, profound answer to this? And so I say, yeah. <laughs> he knew. He knew who he was. But again, you know, it's sort of like when he would do things and other people, like the demons would say, we know who you are. He would say, don't say that. He wasn't denying it. He, he, didn't, he didn't want demons affirming him. He didn't even want to go out there and make the claim for himself. What he did proved that he was the Messiah, but he was very self-aware. And I think, think about it too, if he went out claiming to be the Messiah everywhere, uh, which is, of course, the Hebrew for the Christ, this exercise would have been kind of moot, right? (laughs) Okay, so that's the point. So in any case, uh, it's possible that the question that Jesus asked his disciples was not a terribly serious question at first. Maybe it's just kind of the chit-chat, right? They're just kind of standing around, kind of reviewing how the ministry's going. How do you think the ministry's going here, okay? Elders, do you do that? How's the ministry going here, okay? Uh, you know, are, are we doing the right things? I'm pretty sure, I don't have been to an elders meeting, not the inner elders meeting, but I'm pretty sure how this goes. Everybody's going to, I think we're doing well. Pause. Pastor John says, yeah, we're doing well. Okay, we're doing well. Uh, okay. so that's, that's what we're waiting for. So maybe that's what the disciples were kind of waiting for, too. You want to know? So they asked about, and I think Jesus more or less expected these responses. The people that Jesus has in mind, the people there, the word people, are really the crowds. And of course, just to review, we've seen the crowds before, right? The crowds don't get it. I mean, the crowds, again, as I said, they're, you know, feed us, do miracles, wow us, do some, do some amazing things. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep following you, okay? And Jesus, what did he do? He got in the boat, tried to avoid the crowds, he, you know, and they kept following him around everywhere. That's why, you know, a, a ministry on signs and wonders isn't really going to last. 
James Montgomery Boyce said years ago, if you bring people in with a dog and pony show, you're going to need a large stable and an extensive kennel, okay? Because uh, they just got to get bigger and bigger, right? You know, and they, they'll, they'll watch the doggy ride on the horsey for a while, but then they want to see the horsey ride on the doggy, okay? It's just to see things. I mean, it, it, you know, that, that doesn't really, you know, mean anything in and of itself. They followed him to see these amazing things, but they never lost the what's the most important thing is the here and now sort of idea. They were looking right now, right here. And all of that's fairly typical of the expectation of the Jews. What were they looking for? Well, they're looking for the kingdom. And of course, you know, the leadership, they're looking for the kingdom to come in because they think they're going to be on the top of this kingdom somewhere very close. But what were the people looking for? Well, they were looking for the kingdom to come in because they read in the Old Testament about you know, everybody gets to sit next to their fig tree, and nobody's going to die, and we're all going to be fed, and Jesus fed us, and they're looking for the largest welfare program on earth, okay? This is what they're expecting. They expect to be fed, cared for, just do that, we'll be happy with you. So what were their responses to the question? Here they are, verse 14. Some say, now, again, I, I want you to sort of try and picture the scene with me, okay? Here they're sit, standing around, a bunch of guys, talking about what the, uh, what, what the crowd out there thinks. What do the people say? And I can just see it. You know, they, they kind of, you know, the people. Wow. Wow, the people. They got some wild ideas. Boy, pretty bizarre stuff, okay? Uh Here's some of their suggestions. John the Baptist. That one seems to be very odd to me. Doesn't to you? Yes. They thought he was John the Baptist? I mean, I mean, didn't they know he'd been arrested? Matthew 4, 12. Uh, he'd been, and we haven't read it yet. It's coming up in Matthew, or yeah, back in Matthew 14. Uh, we did read it. The Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12, that he'd been executed. So... Then, you know, how do people come up with this stuff? Uh, maybe they didn't think he was really dead. Maybe they believed he escaped. Maybe they did as Herod did, thought that, that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. I mean, you know, if, if, the, if Herod had that idea, maybe they thought that, he, that John had returned in some fashion to continue his ministry. Uh, he had been resurrected. Again, one wonders how this could happen because we know, right? It was John and Jesus were together at the baptism. I mean, how can they both be the same person? They were both back there at the same time. It just seems illogical. Some people think Elvis is still alive. <laughs> you realize Elvis would be 88 years old now, okay? Uh, Elvis has left the building. Some said Elijah. Elijah's not an improbable suggestion as it might seem. Uh, there's no record of his death, of course. The Old Testament prophet Malachi, or Malachi for some, uh, the Italian prophet, you know, they, uh, said that uh, Elijah was going to return. In, in, some of you may know this. In Jewish celebrations uh, of the Seder, uh, they set aside a, a chair just in case, you know, Elijah shows up. I mean, there's, there's a lot out there, and they, a cup of wine for him. You know, it's sort of like Santa Claus, you know, why is, why is Santa Claus fat? It's all those cookies that everybody leaves. 
poor Elijah would have to come go to all those satyrs. That, 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 would, that would be a bit much. Uh, again, you know, we, we kind of shake our head at that, but uh, I've, I've, I've never really understood why not Elisha. I mean, Elisha is more of a type of Christ, right? I mean, Elisha raised somebody from the dead. Elisha uh, healed a uh, leper, you know. And by the way, Elijah in the form of John the Baptist preceded Christ, and so uh, Elijah in the form of Elijah preceded Elisha. I mean, I could see a lot of reasons why maybe Elisha would be a good suggestion, but that would be way off. Forget all of that. That's, uh, we'll move on. Jeremiah, another seemingly unlikely candidate, but maybe not altogether unreasonable. He was a revered prophet. You know, Elijah was the weeping prophet, right? And uh, he realized that there is no record in the New Testament of Jesus ever laughing. I'm sure he did, but he's a man of sorrows. And maybe something in his demeanor reminded them of uh, Elijah, uh, Jeremiah, rather. Sorry, Jeremiah. In fact, in the apocryphal book of 2 Maccabees, Jeremiah is said to have taken the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense out of the temple and hidden them at Mount Nebo in order to preserve them from the desecration and destruction by the Babylonians. And some Jews thought that Elijah was going to return, retrieve these items, and restore them to their rightful place when the Messiah arrived. I don't know if anybody thought to look at Mount Nebo. I see they're looking for the ark, but they won't find it there. It's in a large wooden box in a giant warehouse just outside of Washington, D.C. So, uh, Another author notes that uh, it, there are other Jewish writings that were predicting the return of the Messiah, 2nd Esdras and 2nd Maccabees in another chapter. What ties all of these different suggestions together? Well, all these were suggestions of someone who was going to come prior to the Messiah. So they're like, they, they were thinking, well, who, who might this Jesus of Nazareth be? Well, he might be, he might be someone who is preparing for the coming of the Messiah. So maybe, maybe that's it. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus didn't ask the disciples, what are the scribes and Pharisees? Who do they say that I am? Okay, they, because they already knew what that was. In Mark chapter 3, don't turn there, verse 22, we read that the scribes came down from Jerusalem saying he's possessed by Beelzebul and he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. They blasphemously attributed all of his miraculous healing power and power over demons to being in league with Satan. That's the famous passage where he says, that's not, that's not logical either. So why would Satan cast out Satan? A house divided against itself can't stand. But at least that's uh, what the opposition thought. Let's take a moment, uh, if we will, and I'll see how much time it is. What if we ask the question today? Who do people say that Jesus is today? Well, in uh, scholarly circles, which I'm sure you have no interest in whatsoever, uh, it's called the quest for the historical Jesus. And uh, for the last uh, 300 years plus, Scholars have been looking for this quest. Back to the, the, the words of the quest for the historical Jesus come from a book by Albert Schweitzer, the famous uh, biblical critical scholar who turned medical missionary in the 1960s. Uh, I'll spare you the details. But some of the early modern critical scholars suggested that one, one, one major theory was that Jesus was just an opportunistic rabbi who gathered a few friends to pull off an elaborate hoax. So what he would do is go around 
uh, claimed to do miracles. His disciples then would claim to have seen these miracles and proclaim that he's the rat, he's the, the Messiah, rather, that he's the Messiah. Uh, this view, of course, is predicated on the idea that the rock records in the Gospels are simply false, uh, never happened, uh, at least not the way the Gospels recorded. This theory was very early on debunked, even by other modern critical scholars and certainly by you know, conservative biblical scholars, with a very simple observation that uh, hoaxes like this never managed to, to last, right? There's always somebody that will stand up in the end and say, no, uh, this, is, this is why uh, Charles Colson, uh, one of the uh, Watergate uh, conspirators, said that you can never believe this was a conspiracy because he has firsthand knowledge that in a conspiracy, some, knuckle, some, uh, soft heart, some, some guy is going to confess that it's a hoax, but we have nothing like that at all. It, you know, it, this would be the most elaborate hoax of all time because no one ever exposed it, and there's no evidence for it. More seriously, others suggest that Jesus of Nazareth actually lived. He had a few disciples. He was crucified. But again, that these stories about his birth and his ministry, particularly his resurrection, they were all invented by the early church. And the doctrines of his deity, his uh, trinity, the resurrection itself, all that came after his death. And again, all of that is predicated on the notion the gospels are just made up. Somebody just made them up. And that supernatural events like virgin births and resurrections and healings and exorcisms and all those other kind of things never happen. I think there's probably a lot of people that you meet these days that would, would say the same thing. It, this, this kind of stuff can't happen. It just doesn't happen. Actually, that comes from a very strange prejudice called anti-supernaturalism or just naturalism. And, and let, me, let me boil it down to this. It's... It, I've never seen it. It can't happen. <laughs> really? I, I, I just can't fathom this happening so that it, it, it can't happen. And by the way, there's a lot of other people who agree with me that this kind of thing can happen. So my own opinions, plus a lot of other people, plus, frankly, let's be honest, a lot of them don't want it to be true. I mean, they, they, they wouldn't want any of this to be true. Uh, for one reason or another, so they just say, well, it can't happen. Let me affirm to you, my friends, that's just a prejudice, all right? Very quickly, 1,500 years ago, if you were to ask any individual living in the world, how does it work? Does the earth move or does the sun move? They would have said what? Just look at the sun. I mean, just look at it, man. What are you talking about? We're standing still and the sun's moving. Come on. And by the way, all the scientists would have agreed with him at that point, right? Everybody agreed. And you could look up in a book, okay? Look up in a book, okay? Yeah, this, this is the way it is. And by the way, everybody kind of wanted it to be that way because that made them the center of the universe. I mean, it's kind of cool to be living at the center of the universe, don't you think? It's just a prejudice, right? Don't be cowed by the fact that a lot of people disagree with you. A lot of people were wrong 1,500 years ago. By the way, I think it'd be really difficult to switch that around, right? Okay, try to prove now. There are some people out there that think the earth is flat, okay? Like a disc on a turntable, things are... No, the point is, is that... No, it doesn't... It, it, it's anti-supernaturalism. Now, but here's the problem. 
if God can't directly be involved in his own world, then you, you still have to explain Jesus. I mean, here's Jesus who went around doing things that were reported on, and here we are 2,000 years later. I mean, I think that he made a pretty big impact. However you want to sort of, you got to explain that. How do you explain that? With no miracles, with no virgin birth, with no resurrection, and yet he still worships today. Well, they come up with things like this. He was a great moral teacher. Ever heard that one? He's a great moral teacher. And I think Pastor John dealt with this uh, recently, and, and C.S. Lewis has dealt with it. Great moral teacher. No, great moral teachers don't go around hoaxing people or lying to people, saying they are something that they're not. You can't be a great moral teacher and go around claiming to be God. Okay? That doesn't work. Uh, it gets worse. How about he was a, he was a revolutionary, but not, not in a revolutionary in the, in the revolution sense. He was like Gandhi, you know, nonviolent, you know, uh, passive uh, revolutionary, and that's how he changed things. He was an advocate of social justice. <clears throat> Again, it's nothing new. By the way, uh, back in 1972, a guy wrote a book called The Greatest Salesman in the World. That's 1972, right at the time of Jesus Christ Superstar. Any coincidence there? In which he said Jesus was the greatest uh, advocate of self-help uh, sort of things. Even today, people say he, the Jesus they know is an advocate of their particular ideology. He's the advocate of uh, their particular movement or political, political party like the whack, uh, woman who said that Jesus would have supported abortion rights. Do you think that's, that's more bizarre than thinking he's John the Baptist? That's the kind of stuff, and sadly, she's taken seriously by a lot of people. That's why we have to be very clear about the answer to the question, who is Jesus? We have to be clear about this. I should mention, too, that other faith traditions have an answer. Roman Catholicism gets a lot of it right, but they still think, most significantly, he was the son of Mary, who was the queen of heaven. Islam thinks he was a prophet who looked forward to Muhammad. Buddhists say that he was an enlightened individual, and some even say that he was a brother of Jesus. Actually, I think the most difficult thing is most people, if you ask them the question, who is Jesus, would basically just ignore it. Back to the text, verse 14, or one of the prophets, refers to the men of God who spoke boldly and sometimes ran afoul of authorities, just as Jesus had done. So you can see how they sort of say, well, maybe he's just like a prophet or something. Did you notice anything interesting about those suggestions, however? For one thing, there are no negative reviews. Nobody, nobody had anything negative to say about him which means the campaign of the Pharisees and scribes to attribute his works to the devil didn't work. Okay, well, we can be glad for that one, you know. So apparently, the people of that day thought that anything the government says should be taken with a grain of salt, so we got to give them that. Uh, again, conspicuously but sadly, no one suggested that he actually was the Messiah. James Montgomery Boyce says, the surprising thing is that no one was suggesting that Jesus was the Messiah, apparently, because Jesus did not match anyone's messianic expectations. 
Now, each one of these persons, again, was associated in one way or another with the coming of the Messiah, but they didn't see him as the Messiah. And I think that's where a lot of people are today. Maybe a lot of people that profess faith in Christ. They think very highly of Jesus. They just don't think highly enough of Jesus. They may even be willing to give him some titles, but they're not really ready to dedicate their lives to him or give him the devotion. He might be a superstar, but he's probably not the Messiah. Certainly not God. Warren Worsby has a trenchant comment here. He says, one thing is clear. We can never make a true decision about Jesus Christ by taking a poll of the people. Second question. At this point, I think any levity or lightheartedness is ground to a halt. If if the crowds don't get it, I think they can be excused somewhat. I mean, they're just the crowds. But now when you turn to the disciples, okay, they've been with him. They've served with him. They've followed him. They've heard him teach. Uh, again, another author says, but you are the most, two most important words. But is an adversative and marks a contrast, and you is emphatic in this context. This is no idle academic inquiry. But who do you say that I am? Do not minimize what the disciples had to overcome to get the answer right. We've already really talked about it. But who would have imagined that the long-awaited Messiah would come in their day to their part of the country, to them? He came with humility and obscurity, no grandeur. He came to common men, important men like the leaders and scholars and religious and civil authorities all opposed him. He just didn't look like what they expected in terms of a Messiah. And the people, again, the scholars who knew the Old Testament scriptures, they didn't see him as the Messiah either. And we've just seen the crowds took, partook in his ministry, but they didn't think that he was the Messiah. I think sometimes we think it would be easy, would have been easier if we would have been, can you ever have this thought? If I could have been there and walked around, if I could have been there to see Jesus, you know, perform a miracle. Have you ever thought that? If I could see one genuine, incontrovertible miracle, my faith would be solid. Really? Do you think so? It's interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew later on, this is really close to the end, at After the resurrection, it said they were in Galilee, and he appeared to them in Galilee. These are to his disciples in Galilee. He appeared to them in Galilee, and some doubted. Believe me, if there was a genuine, incontrovertible miracle that could happen right here, right now, let's let's just imagine something really bizarre. Jesus Christ comes. My theology would have to change. Jesus Christ comes and stands right here 
next to me. And says, sit down. <laughs> okay. And spoke to us for like five minutes. And then left. What would we all do? We'd run to the other fellowship groups. You're not going to believe what just happened. Jesus just showed up. Zuber was preaching and he was there. They're going to go, Zuber, are you kidding me? <laughs> if Jesus is going to show up, it's going to be next to Pastor John in the main session. That's not, that's not going to happen. Are you kidding me? Five minutes later, most of you, I, I think most of you would go, what did we just see? Are we sure? They had seen it. Don't, don't think that it would have been easier for them. What did they have to overcome? Don't get smug. What would we have to overcome? What, what would we overcome? None of us, by God's grace, is any smarter than the crowds. None of us is any more insightful than the disciples. They had to overcome traditional expectations, public consensus, indeed common sense. They would have seen Jesus as a remarkable man, a godly man, a compassionate man, a passionate man at times, a wonder-working man. But they would have seen him as a man. And by the way, in this very text, he himself said, he is who? Son of man. But who do you say that I am? Do not make it so, like, well, of course, logical, easy. So when Peter, of course it's Peter who speaks up. Who else is it going to be that speaks up, all right? Now, most scholars would say that this is put in the mouth of Peter, but probably the rest of the disciples would have been going along with this. It's Peter who spoke up, maybe impetuously, certainly succinctly and definitively, and boldly. You are the Christ. This, this, this is, I mean, I'm trying hard here, folks, but do you feel a little bit of, like, that, that stunned? You are the Christ. This is one of those things. Can you imagine? Think about this. All the disciples would have been with it. I mean, all the disciples would have gone along with it. But then, of course, Peter stands up and says, you are the Christ. Can you, can you kind of sense how they would have been responding there? This is one of those moments where you go, Peter, <laughs> you said it. Oh, no. I mean, they would have wanted that. They probably would have been saying that to themselves. But you don't want to say it out loud. I mean, you wouldn't want to say it out loud because, you know, this is where all their hopes are. This is what they've been following Jesus for. This is what they know, but to say it out loud, right there and then, everything's on the table now. This is it. This is a defining moment. And what if Jesus says, Peter, where in the world did you get that idea? No, no, no. What if he would have done I mean, all the disciples are going, yeah. This is the watershed moment. Depending upon Jesus' response to what Peter's just said, either all of their hopes are going to be fulfilled or they just spent three years of their life following someone that turns out not to be who they were hoping he would be. Remember the two on the road to Emmaus? 
This is the kind of thing you, you, you better be really sure if you're going to make a declaration by this. Because this is the dividing line between your life and everybody else's life that doesn't know this out there. My friends, it still is. It still is for you, and 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 me. It still is. This is the question. But who do you say that I am? This is the question that makes all the difference in your life, depending upon who you answer. Right? This is it. And you have to ask yourself that question every single day. In the world that we're living in, in the life that you're leading right now, who do you say Jesus is? When that temptation comes, who do you say that I am? When someone confronts your faith and challenges you, who do you say Jesus is? Someday he's going to be standing there. And he's going to say it just this way. Who do you say that I am? You better know. You've got to have this down. But Peter being Peter to stop. <laughs> okay, that was great, Peter. Okay, we got there. But what does he do? You are the son of the living God. Uh, In English translation, actually, there are just four words. But in the original, the definite article occurs four times as well. So it really says something like this in the original. As Matthew records it, you are the Christ, the son of the God, the living one. Amazing. Amen? Amen. Amazing. Amen? Steadfast is right next door. Let's let him hear it, okay? Amazing. Amen. He's the son of the living God. It's because we're familiar with this. this is, we sing about it. Does it rhyme? You know, is it going on? All that kind of stuff. He's the son of the living God. And Peter and the other disciples have come to see that he's not just the son of man. He's the son of God. That expression, son of, is a Hebraic expression that means to have the nature of. And the disciples were the first to understand. He's the God-man. He's God and man. I don't pretend. I've been studying this for a long time, which in the course of Western historical theology is just a blip. And we've been studying this as the church. For like 15, 16 centuries, he's the God-man. We, it's, it's really almost impossible to understand it. What does it actually mean? I, I can't say that I understand how a God-man works. This is where a lot of heresies come from. Oh, I know how it works. No, you don't. No, you don't. This is how it works. Just look, read the description here. This is how it works. I do know this. This, this very familiar truth. He's fully God and fully man. He's God in flesh. Why? This is so stunning and so vital. You know why. Because he came to die for sinners. 
And if he's not fully God, he can't pay for your sins. The blood of bulls and coats can't take away sin. And that thou, my God, should die for me. Some theologians say, I can't sing that. Why not? He was the God-man, and he died. Well, I don't understand that God can't die. It says that he died. He's the God-man. He, he shed his blood. Well, that's just the human part. No, he did it. He did it. He's the God-man. He came in perfect flesh. He fulfills all the requirements of perfect righteousness so that his righteousness could be imputed to us. If he's not God and man, the atonement for our sins will not work. If he's not God and man, you are still in your sins. If he's not God and man, then you have no hope. It's so stunning. It's also completely embracing. Everything turns on this. I think unbelievers can kind of see that. They can kind of understand it. If, if, if it's true about what the scriptures say, about what we preach about Christ, then everything in their life has to change. Well, haven't we come to see that ourselves? Don't we see that every time there's a baptism? Don't we really understand that? I knew that. Everything from now on is different because he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. My life hasn't been the same. What about you? How? I can understand why people can't get it. It's too stunning. It's too encompassing. It's too all-embracing. Who could believe it? Well, Peter, obviously. Peter did because he's the one that declared it. But now, Jesus gives him a little beatitude here. The, the blessing. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. By the way, the idea here isn't happy. The word makarios isn't happy. It's not the be happy attitudes, please. It's the idea of, it's not even happy Peter, you win. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, happy, you know, Peter, blessed are you. You got it. You figured it out. You win. No. Blessed are you, Peter, so that you get it. Peter was blessed in order to get it. How did you get this, Peter? Because you're blessed. You get blessed, and then you get it. To be blessed is a work that God has done. To be blessed is to receive the grace of God. God has given the gift of insight and faith and repentance. These are all gifts, love, joy, obedience. They're all gifts, the gift of conversion. God gives that. He draws. He illuminates. He wins by his love. He empowers. And he's the one that gives us, as a gift, a blessing, this confession. You can't even acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord without the Spirit of God working. Anybody that, anybody that makes this profession can't put, pat themselves on the back. That, you know, the other day with Bill Shannon last week, he's trying to pat himself on the back. I like that. It's hard to do. You look awkward and stupid doing it. Because you can't. Jesus says this, where did this come from? Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. A little compassion, folks. Why don't they get it? Because they don't get it. They haven't been blessed. Okay? We don't, we don't go out, you know, headlock, evangelist, say Jesus, okay? You know? That's not going to work. This explains why the Pharisees had to come up with this bizarre notion that he was in league with Satan. This explains these strange and bizarre suggestions from the crowd. Because the only explanation for the, how Peter got it was God opened his heart like 
Like God opened the heart of Lydia in Acts chapter 16. Use the biblical metaphors. The scales fell from their eyes. They got to see it. They saw it. Because God is gracious, because God is powerful. The knowledge that leads to the truth of Christ, the truth that he is the Messiah that leads to salvation is not human knowledge. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. They're spiritually discerned. It's, by, it's a God-given grace, faith provided. If you get it, if you've got it, it's because you're blessed. Never take any credit for it at all. Who do you say that he is? Let me start it for you. He is Okay, you want to, you want to try that again? Just quote the just quote the English text. Just quote the English text. Okay? Of the of the inspired English text, which is the NASB 95. Sorry. I'll start it again. Who do you say he is? He is Now, there may be somebody sitting here today who goes, I don't really understand all that. If, if you're still trying to answer the question, who is he, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who are you? What have you sacrificed? I want to tell you that you can be blessed like Peter was and you can trust Christ. Very quickly, uh, talk to somebody next to you if you're still asking that. Come and talk to me. Talk to any one of us because that's what we want you to be able to say too, to be blessed. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this confession. We know that uh, it's a confession in truth that only true disciples can make. And we pray that uh, next week when we come together again, we'll, we'll learn what it means to be true disciples. You teach us, and by the Spirit of God, finish the message in hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.